0: So, if you're new with us today, I just want to say welcome. We're really glad that you're here. Our pattern at New Hope is that we like to just preach through a book, uh, verse by verse. So, we're in the book of Colossians. And the reason we do that is because we're convinced that the last thing you need to hear is just from me. You desperately need to hear from the Word of God. And so, uh, we are making our way through the book of Colossians right now. Psalm 19 says this about the Word it says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. This is our prayer today, that we would receive the word as what it really is, a treasure more precious than gold or silver. So let me pray, and then we'll start here with Colossians. Uh, Father, we... We want to affirm the words here of Psalm 19, that your word is more precious than gold and silver. And Father, we want to affirm the words that your law is perfect, reviving the soul. And we know without, the, without a shadow of a doubt that there are some here today who desperately need revival, that their souls have grown cold, or possibly that their souls have never been alive because they've never known your son, Jesus Christ. And so we're praying that today, through the preaching of your word, you would bring about revival, that you would revive the soul, that your word would be more precious than gold or silver. Father, we pray that we would receive your word in that way, that we would see it as the great treasure that it truly is. Father, help us to be ready to hear from you today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, there are certain days that happen in your life that no matter how long you live, you will always remember that day. December 29, 2006 is one of those days for me. It was the day that we experienced the birth of our firstborn son, Noah. I still remember odd, weird things about that day. I remember that Kentucky was playing football in the Music City Bowl. I have no idea why I know that. I've never watched the Music City Bowl, and I detest Kentucky football. But for whatever reason, I remember that was on the TV as we were waiting for Noah to be born. I remember that Saddam Hussein, that the big news of the day is that he was about to be executed. I remember exactly what I was wearing that day. I remember that we played the game 500, which is a card game, in the lobby as we were waiting for Noah to be born. There are lots of things I remember about that day. Some of them are just plain random. But thankfully, there's also other things I remember about that day that are a little bit more important. I remember the nervousness, knowing that the clock was going forward, and that no matter what I did, I could not stop the fact I was about to become a parent. And no matter if I was ready or not, it was inevitable I was about to become a father. I remember the surprise at just going through the childbirth process, no matter how many classes you take, no matter how many videos you watch, you just cannot prepare yourself for that moment. I just remember the shock thinking, this is what it's like to see childbirth. But mostly, I remember holding my son for the first time and thinking how amazing it was that I was holding my son. More than anything, that's what I remember about about that day, the joy of holding Noah for the first time. And really... Over the course of the next couple days in the hospital, that's the emotion that I most remember, the joy or the happiness. Now, we knew there were things to learn, and even in the hospital, there were little hiccups. But for the most part, the thing that we felt in the hospital those days was just this overwhelming sense of joy. Part of what added to that joy or that happiness is that in the hospital, Noah was the perfect baby. We held him. He didn't cry. He even slept in our room. He slept through the night. He was a fantastic baby. If our experience at the hospital was any gauge we were under the impression that parenting would not be that hard. I mean, sure, we knew that Noah was a newborn, and we knew that he had things to learn, and we had things to learn. But based on our experience in the hospital, it seemed that we were just suited for this parenting thing. And so as we stepped out of the hospital two days later on New Year's Eve of 2006, 2006, it seemed like we were headed to a life of adventure and fulfillment. And then we got home, and a little over a week later, the wheels came off the wagon. Noah was no longer the sleeping, peaceful baby. He was now the baby crying inconsolably in the middle of the night. We were no longer the parents overwhelmed with joy at the thought of being parents. We were just overwhelmed. And to be honest, although we'd thought before we knew what we were doing and we were in awe of the task of being parents, we realized after a little over a week that we had zero clue what we were doing. We were overmatched. About a week and a half after Noah was born, I left on a trip I'd committed previously to go back to a wedding in Iowa. Looking back, that was definitely a rookie mistake to leave my wife in that state. But I went back to the wedding in Iowa, and I remember as I was driving home on the way home from Iowa back to Kentucky, I remember Tanya calling me, and she was just sobbing uncontrollably. She just had no idea how to get Noah to stop crying. Now, the truth is that I was probably the worst person she could have talked to at that moment because I knew even less than she did. This was clearly the case of the blind leading the blind. We were parents, but we didn't really know what we were doing. And if I'm being real honest with you today, that feeling has never left completely. We still don't know exactly what we're doing. Now, we may not sob uncontrollably, although I'm not ruling that out for the future for sure. But there are plenty of times where we just plain feel overmatched. And what's crazy is it seems that that problem is not going away anytime soon. Just a couple of weeks ago, we were talking with a couple friend of ours that we respect probably more than any other parenting couple. We've known this couple for years and years and years. And more than any other family we know, they have been the most intentional in raising their kids in a way that brings honor to Christ. And so we were talking with them about parenting. We were just trying to get ideas. And they just happened to share this little piece of information that for them, the hardest stage of parenting was when their kids were in their 20s. I could not have been more surprised. I know the stage of life that we are in with young kids is exhausting and difficult, and I've worked in student ministry, and I've worked with teenagers long enough to know that teenagers, I know that that is a really difficult stage of life. But the 20s, I thought that that would be the golden age of parenting. And so for them to share this little nugget of information with me, or as I like to refer to it, a bomb, something that blew up my world, that's when it struck me. In that moment, I knew this, that parenting is really, really hard. And I don't mean hard in the same way that it's hard to figure out how to put your kids' toy together on Christmas morning when you're trying to get it out of the box and assemble it. I mean hard as in fall on your knees. I have no clue what I'm doing hard. That's the type of hard we're talking about. And yet, while most of us who are parents would acknowledge that reality, it always surprises me how rarely we're frank with one another about the difficulties and complications that we face in parenting. In fact, it seems to me that we spend a good majority of our time in parenting trying to convince people that we're better parents than we actually are. We're trying to hide all these deficiencies. Everybody knows that we have deficiencies as parents, and yet we try to do everything we can to make sure that no one else thinks that we have deficiencies. That's too bad. Because I think it keeps us from having a lot of the honest conversations that we need to have. Listen, few things in life are more important than the parent-child relationship. I think that's true from a sociological standpoint. I think you can make the case biblically that that's true as well. And so given the difficulty of the task and given the importance of the task, I think when the Bible speaks about this relationship, the parent-child relationship, we should stop and we should listen. And that's what exactly what it does here in Colossians 3. Now, before we dive into the passage, let me just make a similar qualification to the one that I made last week. Again, as I said last week, is it related to marriage, there may be a tendency for some of you to think, well, this passage doesn't really relate to me, right? Maybe you're grown and you're out of the house and so you're not under your parents' authority in the same way. Maybe you're not married, you don't have kids yourself, and so you're wondering, how does this apply to you? And if that's you, I would just offer up the same words that I offered last week when we talked about marriage. Listen, even if you're not a parent now, that doesn't mean you'll never be a parent. Or it doesn't mean that you might not have a parent-like role to play. Perhaps you have a niece or nephew where for a season of life, you'll need to step in a parent like role. Or, perhaps, even if you're never to be a parent, you will always know those who are parents, right? And the more you can know about the biblical view of marriage or parenting, marriage last week, parenting this week, the better friend you can be. And so even if you're not a parent, even if you feel like you're long since out of the child-parent relationship, I would still say that there is something for you to learn in this. And here's the other caution I would offer. I think we need to be really careful about bringing a consumer mindset into our time as a church. I think it's really important that we understand this. Just because something doesn't specifically apply to you doesn't mean that it's not worthwhile for us to talk about as a church. Just because you may not be a parent doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about parenting. And the reason I say that is because Paul obviously felt that way. I'm sure there were some in the church at Colossus who were not parents or children, or children at least in the way that we're going to define them here in a second. And yet he felt like it was worthwhile to talk about it with the church at Colossus. And so I think it's worthwhile for us to talk about it as well. Similarly, some of you may not struggle with gossip. You may not struggle with sexual morality or anger. But it doesn't mean that we shouldn't talk about those things either. We're not talking about them today. But if they come up in Scripture, we should talk about those also. The fact of the matter is that some do struggle with gossip. Some do struggle with sexual morality. Some do struggle with anger. And some really do need advice when it comes to parenting. Biblical advice. And so a mark of spiritual maturity, I think, is two things. One, the mature believer is easily edified, meaning this, that even in messages that may not apply to you specifically, the mature believer is still able to glean something that applies to their life. The mature believer is also able to rejoice when they know that this message may suit someone better than it suits them, and they can rejoice that God is working in other people's lives. And so if you are not a parent at this point, and you're not living under the authority of your parents anymore, I just want to say I think this passage is still worthwhile. Now that said, without any further ado, let's just dive in here. Colossians 3, verses 20 and 21. Just two verses that we're looking at today. It says this, it's pretty straightforward. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become Discouraged. Now for the most part what I've said so far I've focused on the parenting aspect of this passage but there are clearly two two parts of the relationship that are offered up here there's the advice to children and there's the advice to parents and so in a similar fashion to last week let me just address them one at a time let's start by looking at the command to children again Colossians 3:20 children obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord Now again the book of Ephesians has a helpful parallel passage so flip back just two books to your left, Ephesians 6, verses 1 to 3. It goes into a little more detail here of the parent-child relationship. So Ephesians 6, 1 through 3, it says this, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, this is the first commandment with the promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. So an important place for us to start is by asking this question, in both relation to Colossians 3 and Ephesians 6. What do we mean by children? Now the Greek word that's used for children here could actually refer to any child, even an adult child. But given the context of the passage and given the rest of scripture, I think we can safely assume that a child, in this case, is one who is still under the authority of the household or still under the authority of their parents. So if you are, if you are not married but you're living out on your own or if you are married I don't think that this passage speaks directly to you. Now, you still have an obligation to honor your parents and to respect them and to treat them in a way that honors Christ, but you are not obligated to obey in the same way. Now, part of the reason I say that is because of the passage last week. You may remember that when we talked about marriage, we said that part of marriage is that the husband and wife leave their father and mother. And so they're not obligated to obey in the same way. But if you are still living at home and you are still under the authority of your parents, this passage is directly addressed to you. Now, the fact that Paul is addressing children is significant because, in this culture, the ancient culture, the culture that the church at Colossus would have been in, children would not have been thought of as equals. And yet, here is Paul, in a letter to the church at Colossus, addressing children as if they are responsible members of the church as if they were to assume here that he's addressing believing children, and he's addressing them as if they are responsible members of the church. This is a reminder to us that children, too, are created in the image of God. We shouldn't think of children as lesser humans. We should think of them as equal. Now, they have different roles to play, but they are equal. That's why Paul addresses them as part of the church. The other thing I would say is this. By addressing children, Paul is clearly showing that he expected children to be present when the letter is read. Here's, here's how a letter like this would work. Paul would write the letter to the Colossians. He would send it off. They would gather the whole church together and then they would read the letter. The fact that he's addressing children means that he expected that children were present when they would gather together for worship. So for the record, I don't think it's weird that we have middle school or high schoolers attending church services here. And I don't think it would be weird if we had younger children attending also. In fact, I know that we have some who are attending today. They knew that today was the passage about children obeying parents, and and, um, so here they are, which I think is fantastic. I think that Paul would have expected that. I think that Paul would assume that it would be okay for children to be present. I don't think it's weird at all. And so what I'm going to do today, at least in the first half of this passage, is I'm going to take Paul's tactic, right? Paul directly addresses children, and so I'm going to do the same thing. Listen, I know last week we talked about the fact that sixth graders had to bear with me as I was talking about marriage. If last week was hard for you, this week is your passage, right? This is directly addressing you. Now again, we're defining children as those who are still living under the authority of their parents. For five years as a student pastor, I had the privilege of addressing this group of people every single week. People who are still under the authority of their parents. And I wouldn't trade my job here for that job by any means. But I will say this, I miss addressing that group. And so I'm glad that today I get the chance to address you, children, anyone who's still living under the authority of your parents. Now, parents, I'm sure that you'll want to hear this, and I'm sure that you're going to love what I'm going to say, all right? But hold on, I'll come to you in a minute. Let me address the children first, though. Let me say this. The command given in both Colossians and Ephesians is really straightforward, in Ephesians, it says, obey your parents. In Colossians, it says, obey your parents in everything. Now, I know probably how your junior high or high school or maybe even elementary mind is thinking. You're probably already thinking of loopholes, right? You're thinking, it really doesn't mean everything, does it? Right? And some of you, because I know how your contrarian mind thinks, you're thinking, well, what if my parents told me to rob a bank? Would I have to do that? Well, the answer to that is, of course, no, right? Like uh, commands like this in scripture are always implying that you only obey provided that they're not teaching you to or asking you to do something that contradicts scripture. If your parents ask you to do something sinful or if they ask you to do something that contradicts the word of God, by all means, do not obey them. Otherwise though, you are to obey your parents. Why? Verse 20 tells us it pleases God. Colossians 3.20 says it pleases God. Ephesians 6 says it's the right thing to do. And then it goes on to say the Ten Commandments that are given with a promise. It says that you are to honor your father and mother. Now, the fact that the Ten Commandments says that you are to honor your father and mother I actually think, says something about it's not just your outward actions that matter, but it's that you have an attitude of honoring your father and mother as well. Ephesians 6 goes on to say that, generally speaking, it will go better for you if you obey your parents. And I would also argue this, for those of you who are in the category of children, again, meaning all those under the authority of the household, the reason why you should want to obey your parents is because Jesus obeyed the Father. And you should want to be like Him. You should want to obey just like Jesus obeyed. Now, that said, let me just cut to the chase here and say this. For some of you who are living under your parents' authority, you are not living out Colossians 3 and Ephesians 6. You are not obeying your parents. Some of you here, in fact, have a regular habit of disobeying your parents. Your parents tell you not to watch a movie, for example, and then you go to a friend's house and you watch that very movie they told you not to watch. Or your parents tell you not to buy something, and then you figure out a way to go behind their back and buy it anyway. Or your parents give you certain parameters as it relates to the use of the phone, or as it relates to the use of the computer. And because you know more about technology than your parents do, you've figured out ways to get around that, right? you figured out ways to get around those parameters. And listen, um, for those of you who are in this category, I've worked with students long enough to know that that statement is usually true, that you do know more about technology. And you may think you're getting away with it, but I know, right? Like, And more importantly, God knows. And the only reason I know is because I've known lots of people who have confessed that to me. Uh, I'm not very technologically savvy either way, but anyway, I digress, All right. The point is this, that you have somehow engaged in a pattern where you are regularly disobeying your parents. Your parents tell you to do something and you don't do it. Now, if that's you, I just want to say this, you're walking on dangerous ground. Now, the good news is it's not too late. Listen, the gospel of Jesus Christ is for parent disobeyers, It's for those who disobey. Their parents is for all sinners. And so I just want to say something specifically to those of you who are young. Maybe the reason why you have troubles obeying your parents is because it's possible that you just don't have the spirit of God. And the reason you don't have the spirit of God and want to do what's right, the reason you don't have the spirit is because you've never trusted in Christ. Now, I know a lot of you who are younger and here today, you've grown up in the church. The fact that you're here today is evidence that you've grown up in the church. But listen, listen. What I hope and pray for you is that you wouldn't just know Jesus because your parents occasionally talk about Him and you come to church, but that you would know Jesus because you have a relationship with Him, because you've recognized that you have sinned and you've disobeyed—not just your parents, but God. And so I'm pleading with you, young people. Listen, listen, young people. I'm pleading with you. Do not assume that just because you just because you come to church, you are a Christian. Just like you wouldn't assume that just because you walk into a car that makes you, or walk into a garage that makes you a car, right? You shouldn't assume that just because you're here today that means you're a Christian, and you shouldn't assume that just because your parents are Christians that means you're a Christian. No, the only way that you become a Christian is by learning to trust in Christ yourself, by repenting of your sin and believing in Him. And so I'm, I'm asking you, who are young people, I'm begging you to turn to Christ. If you see areas where you disobey your parents, that is a reminder to you that you desperately need the Gospel. And I know that there are many here today who are younger and don't know Christ, and so I'm, just, I'm asking you to consider, is your faith, have you made your faith with Christ your own? Have you decided that you are a sinner and that you desperately need Christ? Now, I'll say this too. Some of you are Christians. Some of you who are fall in that category of children, you are Christians But you have been walking in sin in this area. And if that's the case, you need to confess your sin to God. You need to remind yourself that you are covered by the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and that when He looks at you, He is pleased with you, but you need to confess your sin. And so, what that means practically is that for some of you who are younger, you need to go home today, you need to sit down with your parents, you just need to confess areas that you have been disobeying, confess areas that you have strayed from following them the way that you should. I think there's also another reality that some of you are really good at outwardly obeying, but inwardly your heart is very rebellious. You don't blatantly disobey your parents, but every time they tell you to do something, you roll your eyes. Maybe not physically, but inwardly you're rolling your eyes. Like, oh man, here we go again. And so while you may obey outwardly, inwardly your heart hates that you have to obey. And the reason why I know this is the case because this was my story growing up. I kept all of the rules. My parents would have said I was a good kid. But the fact was I wasn't obeying those rules because I thought my parents were wise or because I trusted God's plan for me and obeying my parents. I was keeping those rules because I thought that's how I'd be right with God. There are more than one ways to rebel against God. One way is to be a rule breaker on the outside. The other is to be a rule keeper and think that by keeping the rules you can be right with God. But neither are true. There will be plenty of rule breakers in hell. There will be plenty of rule keepers in hell. It is only those who have trusted in Christ. It's only those who have repented of their sins and believed in Christ's work that can be saved. And so even if you are a child and you're here today and you are an outward rule keeper, but an inward rule breaker, I would say you too need to repent. Now, I will say this also. I know that some of you are under the impression that your parents don't always seem to know what they're talking about, all right? Um, I remember when I was growing up, and I'll give a a small trivial example, okay? Okay. There would be times where my parents would be wearing certain things, and I would think, why in the world are they wearing that? Right? Did they not have a clue about social norms? Is this, why are they wearing that? Now, interestingly enough, a lot of those things I was so embarrassed about back then have actually come back into fashion now. And so I don't, maybe they're just ahead of their time, I'm not sure. But I know some of you feel that way about your parents, and not just as it relates to fashion. Right? You feel like they just don't know what it's like to be a teenager, they don't know what it's like to be a kid. But let me let you in on a secret your parents probably actually know more than you think. And even if they didn't, it wouldn't matter. Because in Colossians 3, you are told to obey your parents because of the fact that it's in the Lord, right? Because of the fact that you love God. And so you are to obey, not just to please your parents, although I'm sure they'll appreciate it, but you are to obey because you love God. Obedience to your parents is ultimately an act of trust and love in God. You trust that he knows what he's talking about when he says this in Colossians 3. So children, this is your command. Obey your parents. Now, I've noticed that during this section, there have been a lot of parents have been nodding their heads agreeing. And in fact, um, if I was in a Southern Baptist church in the South, I have no doubt that by this point, I would have got several amens from the congregation, right? And in fact, some of you are thinking right now, I have a seven-year-old. Should I maybe make them listen to this message this week, Right? But before you go crazy, and before you tape Colossians 3.20 all over your house, let's just make sure that you understand the second part of this verse, okay? Because yes, it's true, children, you are to obey parents. But parents, you have a role to play also. Look at what Colossians 3.21 says. It says this. It says, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Now again, Ephesians 6, the parallel um, passage in Ephesians 6 says this, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, what's interesting is that in both Ephesians 6 and Colossians 3, Paul specifically addresses fathers. Now, the Greek word that's used here in Colossians 3 and in Ephesians 6 could actually refer to both parents, but it's more commonly translated as fathers. (coughs) Excuse me, I think that's the right translation here. I think there's a reason why fathers are addressed specifically. And I'll come back to that in just a minute. But that said, I think the principles that he's giving to fathers can be applied to both parents. And so this is what he says. In Colossians 3, he says that fathers, and again, this can be applied to both parents, are not to provoke their children lest they become discouraged. In Ephesians 6, he adds that parents, and again, specifically fathers, are not to provoke their children to anger, but rather they are to bring them up in the training or the instruction and discipline of the Lord. So taking these two passages together, parents, this is your role. Your role is to not provoke your children to anger, to the point of discouragement, and to bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. To say it another way, this is your goal as a parent, to encourage your kids, to point them to Christ, and get them ready for eternity. Now what's sad is that few parents actually make that their goal, even in the church. We have goals for our kids But often the goals are something like this, that we want to get them academically ready for college, or that we want to get them to a point where they are socially aware, or we want to get them to the point where they are a good person and they can function as a citizen. Rarely do we think about, are we preparing our kids for eternity? Think about oftentimes even the way parents make decisions, the way they make decisions about jobs or moving or those types of things. Oftentimes, it's with the the ideas of how can we prepare them academically and socially And rarely is it with this idea, how can we prepare them for eternity? Listen, I want you to know this. Even if your kid ends up graduating from the best Ivy League school, and they end up with a job that pays well, and they end up with, uh, they're living in a nice neighborhood, and they're socially skilled, and they're kind to everyone. Even if all of that happens, and yet you did not bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord, then you have failed as a parent. Because this is your task. Now, I'm not talking about salvation here. Listen, that is up to God, right? We are the ones who scatter the seed. God is the one who makes it grow. I'm not saying that you can make your children become Christians. That is God's role, and you have to pray like crazy that that would happen. But your role is to bring up your children in the training and instruction of the Lord. This is your job, to get your kids ready for eternity, do not provoke them to discouragement. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. All those other things that everyone else pursues after, there may be some value, but this, biblically, is your job. Parents, this is not something you can say, oh, we just want to add uh, instructing in the Lord as another thing, right? In the same way that we talk about school, in the same way that we talk about friends, we're just going to add a religious component. That's not the way it works. This is your role, to point your kids to Christ. Christ to not discourage them, to bring them up in a way that honors the Lord. So maybe you're asking, well, what does this look like? What does it look like to not provoke my children? What does it look like to bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord? Well, let's let's focus first on the provocation part. Colossians 3 says this, fathers do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Ephesians 6 says something similar and that we should not provoke them to anger. So my question is, what are some ways that we as parents can provoke our children to anger? Or, in Colossians 3 language, that we can provoke them to be discouraged. Well, maybe this would be helpful if I just asked the kids, what ways do your parents provoke you? But I won't do that today. I won't put you on the spot. But I think there's probably a, a pretty endless list, if we're honest. But let me, just, let me list a few here. I think that we provoke our children when words of correction and rebuke flow faster than words of affirmation and encouragement. Now, to be clear, when I'm talking about encouragement and affirmation, I'm not talking about worldly praise. I'm talking about encouraging and affirming that which God encourages and affirms. So I'm not talking about affirming that your kid is great at basketball or encouraging them that they got an A on the test. That's okay, and that's fine, and that's probably good. But what I'm talking about is encouraging and praising Christ-like characteristics and attributes. Listen, even if your kids are not Christians, by the God's common grace, there will be times where they will demonstrate. They will demonstrate godly attributes. And when that happens, we should encourage and affirm. In his book, The Practice of Affirmation, Sam Crabtree argues that encouragement and affirmation, along with criticism and correction, work like a bank account. When you encourage and affirm, it's as if you're depositing into the account. And then when you correct, or you rebuke, or you criticize, then you are taking out of the account. And Crabtree argues in this book that if we're going to have healthy relationships, there should always be a positive balance in the account. In other words, there should be more encouragement and affirmation in the account so that when we need to make correction, and listen, as parents, we will need to make correction. But there should be enough encouragement and affirmation so that when we have to take out a deposit, there's still some in there so that our kids will still listen, so that we still have a voice with them. This is a mark of healthy relationships. Now, sadly, for many parents, this is not the case. Earlier this week, I was playing tennis with my boys on a local tennis court. And when I say playing tennis, I'm probably using that term fairly loosely, okay? They were whacking the ball all over the place. And we were just basically chasing tennis balls. That's what we were doing. But on the other court, just a couple courts down, there was a father playing with his son. I think the father was, well, I don't know how the father was, but the son was probably nine or ten, all right? And I have to say that this, this interaction that he was having with his son was beyond troubling because everything was correction and criticism. And oftentimes it had nothing to do with tennis and everything to do with the kid's character, Right, he's, he would say things like this. He would say, why would you do that, Will? Will was his name. This is why I don't like playing with you, Will. This is why it's no fun to be around you, Will. This is the type of thing that he's saying throughout the course of the time playing tennis. This is a classic picture of provocation and discouragement. My question for you parents is simply this. What does your bank account look like with your kids? And I'm not talking about money at all. I'm talking about the balance between encouragement and, and affirmation and correction and rebuke. Now, I'm going to argue here in just a minute that you must correct. You must correct if you're going to be a good parent. But I'm also going to argue, and I am arguing now, that in order to keep our kids from being discouraged, there should be a bank account that is healthy, that we're encouraging and affirming more. And again, I would encourage you to make sure that affirmation is Christ-centered and it points to the hope found in Christ. So I think here's another way we can provoke our kids. We provoke our children when we demand that they live up to a standard that cannot be met and then fail to offer them the grace that's found in Christ. Now the fact is, no one can live up to the standard of God. Matthew 5 says, be perfect, Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. None of us can live up to that standard. And it's part of God's wisdom that He's given us that standard so that we can recognize our need for grace. The problem for parents is that oftentimes we demand that our kids keep certain standards And then we fail to point them to the grace that's found in Christ. Now, the other problem is that oftentimes those standards are not God's demands, they're just our demands. And so we demand things like, for example, that they have a perfect report card. Or we demand that they never embarrass us in public. Or we demand that they excel in sports or music or art or whatever it is. Or we demand that they act a certain way when they're around their friends. And then when they fail to meet that standard, instead of offering them the grace, or pointing them to their need for Christ, we instead pour down our disappointment and our anger. Now, I'm not arguing here that we should set the bar low for our kids. In fact, I'm saying that we should probably set it even higher than you are setting it. You should set it at God's demands, not your demands. Let's be careful to make sure that what we're demanding of our kids is what God would demand of our kids and not what the world would demand of our kids. Let's expect them to try to live out what God is asking And then when they don't do it, to point them to the grace found in Christ. And related to that, I would say this. One other way we can provoke our kids is when we make it seem as if we never make any mistakes. One of the most powerful things you can say as a parent is simply this. I'm sorry I did that. I was wrong. Will you please forgive me? This is one of the most powerful things you can say as a parent. I'm sorry. I was wrong. Will you please forgive me? When you never apologize to your kids, you make it seem as if you don't need grace. And this is discouraging to our kids because when we point out their faults, then they think, well, mom and dad never mess up. Now we need to be quick to acknowledge where we've messed up so that our kids can understand that we too need a Savior. And this encourages them because they know that mom and dad are just like them and that they too are sinners in desperate need of grace. Parents, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Furthermore, Ephesians 6 adds this, that your role is not just to not provoke your children, it's to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, I think there's a real danger here that uh, half the room could fall in love with Colossians 3.20, that children must obey their parents, and the other half of the room could fall in love with Colossians 3.21, that we not discourage our kids. And here's the danger. We don't want to go... There's a ditch on either side, right? We don't want to go to either extreme. We want to affirm that both verses are correct and that God in his wisdom has given us both verses. One early church father, and I forget who it is, said that we are prone to fall off the horse on one side and then simply get up on the horse and then fall off on the other. And listen, this is so true with Colossians three twenty and 21. It's so easy for us to emphasize that our kids obey. And so we emphasize this to the point that we become harsh and to the point that we start to discourage them. On the other hand, it's so easy to emphasize that we should not discourage them that we stop requiring that they obey. Both are wrong. Both are wrong. I've seen this in in many cases in the church, that some parents are too harsh, and they've clearly crossed the line of of provocation. Other parents are too permissive, and they've clearly dismissed Colossians 3.20, and they've crossed into licentiousness. Listen, we need both verses God in his infinite wisdom knows that we need both of these verses. Russell Moore says it this way. A parent disciplining a child communicates to the child the discipline and judgment of God in ways deeper and more resonant than any Sunday school lesson. A parent who will not discipline a child for disobedience or who is inconsistent in doing so is teaching that child not to expect consequences for behavior. In short, a parent who will not discipline is denying the doctrine of hell. At the same time, A parent who disciplines in anger or with harshness teaches a judgment of God that is capricious and unjust. An abusive parent, worst of all, ingrains in a child's mind a picture of God as a ruthless devil who cannot be trusted to judge justly. Listen, we must do both, right? We must be careful to make sure that we're not harsh with our children and that we're not provoking them to the point of discouragement. But we must also insist that Colossians 3.20 is still true, that they should obey. As parents, we want to live out both. We want to bring up our kids in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We want our kids to see their sin, not so that they feel bad about themselves or not so that they can realize how much they've embarrassed us, but rather so they can see how great their need is for a Savior. We want our kids to understand that they are sinful, but not so that they have a low self-esteem. Self-esteem is a whole other issue. We want them to have Christ's esteem We want them to understand that there is hope found in Christ and that if they turn to Christ, they can be forgiven. Here's the question I have for you parents. If I were to go and I were to ask your kids, tell me about your parents. After the service, I go on the playground and I just decide I'm going to do some random interviews with kids, right? I say, tell me about your parents. Would it ever come to their mind that the thing that you care most about is Jesus? Would your kids say, you know, i I don't know what I would say about mom, but I'll say this. She's always talking about Jesus. Or would your kids say about their dad? Would they say, yeah, dad is quick to remind me of the grace of God. Would your kids say that about you? Would your kids say that this is what drives you? That you are trying to point them to Christ in every circumstance? Listen, as parents, we want to avoid provoking our kids to anger. but We also want to be careful to bring up our kids in training and instruction of the Lord. Now one thing I might add here, before we move on to why all this matters, I do think there's a reason why this is specifically addressed to fathers. Because fathers, you are to take the lead in your home spiritually. To be frank, at every church I've ever been at, many fathers have abdicated in this responsibility. Going back to our conversation last week, God has given us roles to play. And fathers, your role is to bring up your children in a way that honors Christ. You are to lead your family in this way. And I think, I think we can make that argument biblically. I think that's what's happening here in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 6. But we can also make it from real-life observation. In his book, The Gospel-Powered Gospel Parenting, author William Farley reports on a study published in Touchstone magazine in 2003. And it confirms the importance of fathers leading the family. This particular study examined the connection between a parent's church attendance and the future likelihood that his or her children would attend church. In other words, they just looked at parents' church attendance, and they figured out what would be the odds that, that, that those parents' children would go on to attend church as adults. All right, so here's what they found. When both mother and father regularly attended church, 33% of, ch- of their children end up being regular church goers. And I'll say this, that number should be a little discouraging to you, right? When both mother and father regularly attend church, only 33% of the time their kids will likely attend church as adults. Now, I would argue that probably in this study, they were just looking at church goers and not passionate followers of Christ. I would hope and I would pray that if you're passionately following Christ, the numbers would be much higher. But in this study, when both mother and father regularly attended, 33% of children ended up going to church as adults. When mom was a regular attender, but dad was not practicing, only 2% ended up going to church later on. Now, here's the most fascinating part. When dad was a regular church attender and mom was non-practicing, 44% of children became regular church goers. Now, I don't even know what to make of that exactly. I think the wrong conclusion to take from that would be to say, well, let's try to encourage moms not to come to church, right? <laughs> that would be the wrong wrong thing to take from this. But I will say this. I think it highlights the importance of fathers. I'll, I'll just say this. Having worked in student ministry for five years in Amarillo and then for Three years in Kentucky as a volunteer. Almost always, the students who were the most passionate about Christ, and there were exceptions to this, by God's grace, the students who are most passionate about Christ, their fathers were the most passionate about Christ in the church. There are exceptions by God's grace. By God's grace, he can get a hold of us, right? And even in my own case, even in my own case, that's not the type of home that I grew up in, and God in his grace got a hold of me. And so uh, we're not saying that it always works out that way. I'm just saying from observation standpoint, there is something unique about the father's relationship with their children as it relates to their following Christ. And in this study that I, I've just been mentioning, this is the conclusion they came to. The father's spiritual example is the primary tool that shaped his children's desire to embrace religion. And uh, let me explain this for just a second. The number one indicator of whether your kids will be passionate about Christ is whether you as parents are passionate about Christ. And so, if you want your kids to follow Christ, here's the best thing you can do for your kids be passionate about Christ yourself. If you are passionate about Christ, your kids will see that it is genuine and that you have a genuine desire to follow Christ, and they will see the beauty of the gospel lived out. So, fathers, let me ask you this Are you leading your family spiritually? Now listen, you can't change what's happened in the past. And for uh, maybe maybe wives or for that matter children who are disappointed and maybe the way their fathers have led in the past, I would say you need to be careful not to hold the past over their head. But I will say this, you can change it going forward. Maybe maybe in the past your family has not done a good job of raising up your kids in a way that is, is bringing them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And while you may regret that that's been the case, listen, it's not too late. Start today. Maybe you just need to go home and you need to confess to your kids and say, you know, we have not done a good job of this in the past, but we want this to change going forward. And maybe that means that you're praying with your kids more regularly. Maybe it means that you're just asking them simple questions about what did you learn at church this Sunday? Maybe it means that you're having family devotionals throughout the week, but it means this, that you are being intentional and bringing up your children in the training and instruction of the Lord. Now, the reason I bring all this up is not to guilt you into wanting to do this, but rather because I can't begin to explain to you how important this relationship is. And here's why. Because embedded in the parent-child relationship is a picture of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans 8 tells us that we are adopted into His family. That by believing in Christ, we become sons. We become daughters. That we call Him Father. And so what we want to do as parents is to give our kids an earthly picture of what our Heavenly Father looks like. We want to love our kids in such a way so that they would want to know the Heavenly Father more. We as Christians know what the Father's love is like, that He sacrificed His Son for us, and this is the type of love that we should want to show our kids. Listen, the reason why the parent-child relationship matters is because it's a picture of God's love for us. And so parents... The reason you should want to do this is not because I'm telling you to or not because you feel guilty. It's because you love Jesus and you want your kids to see what the relationship between us and the Father is like because of Jesus. And so you want to model for them this is what the relationship should like. Kids, the reason why you should want to obey your parents is not because I'm telling you to or not just because they tell you to but because this is what God would say for you to do. And because this is what Jesus did, right? you should want to follow his example. Now, let me just say this in conclusion. Whether you fall in the category of parent or child or maybe neither, if you feel like you have failed, the good news is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is for you. Listen, we will never be perfect fathers or mothers or children. Excuse me. But he is the perfect father. And Christ was the perfect son. This is our hope. That based on what God has done through his son Jesus Christ, we can be counted as righteous. And so let me say this the goal of the parent child relationship is not to be the perfect parent, it's not to be the perfect child, it's to point to the perfect Savior. That's the goal to point to Jesus. And so if you're a parent and you're here today, make that your goal this week. Point to Jesus. If you're a kid and you're here today, make that your goal, to be more like Jesus. In everything we do, not just in parent-child relationship, but in everything we do, we want to make much of him, including in our parent-child relationships. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you that you are the Heavenly Father who loves us. We thank You that You have loved us and that You have brought us into Your family, that we have been adopted as sons and daughters. Father, we know that there are some here today who did not have the best earthly fathers growing up. And we're praying that they would experience the love of the heavenly Father. They would experience Your love. That they would recognize that it's true, parents are imperfect and children are imperfect, but You are perfect. Father, we pray that uh, for those who are children, who are here today that they would have the desire to obey their parents ultimately because they want to obey you for those who are parents today we pray that they would taste, take this task seriously That they would not provoke their children to anger rather they would bring up their kids in the instruction and discipline of the lord and we pray that we would do all of this because we love you it's in jesus name we pray all this amen